TheWellnessCouch.com, streaming wellness into your lives. Pull up a rock by the campfire. It's time for that paleo show with your hosts, Sarah Stewart, Steve Hayter, and the man with no shoes, Brett Hill. Welcome to That Paleo Show, making the paleo lifestyle easy and accessible for everyone. I'm Steve Hayter. And I'm Brett Hill. And today we are without our vibrant co-host Sarah, who can't be with us, but boy, do we have a super exciting interview for you guys today. Today we're going to be talking with Dr. Ronesh Sinha, who has worked uh, out a way to bring the benefits of a primal lifestyle to South Asian people to tackle the alarming rates of health disease, diabetes, obesity and related conditions that he sees, especially from those that emigrate away from their home country. We know that a lot of our listeners work in office environments or encounter more stress than they would like on a daily basis. And so there'll be lots of crossover, I'm sure, uh, in our conversation today that's relevant to all people. Dr. Ron has worked with some of the largest IT companies in the world and has seen firsthand the impacts like an increase, uh, sorry, with that things like an increase of processed foods, a sedentary lifestyle and a buildup of daily stress is having on an entire culture. These lifestyle factors are leading to heart attacks at a, at a younger age and a higher susceptibility to health ailments later in life. The South Asian Health Solution is the first book to provide an, an, an ancestral health-based wellness plan culturally tailored for those of South Asian ancestry living in India, the United States and across the world. A population identified as being at the highest risk for heart disease, diabetes and obesity and related conditions. Dr. Ronesh Sinha, an internal medicine specialist in California's Silicon Valley, sees high-risk South Asian patients and runs education and wellness programs for corporate clients. He has taken many South Asians out of high-risk, high-body-mass category and helped them reverse disease risk factors without medications. His comprehensive lifestyle modification approach has been validated by cutting-edge medical science and the real-life success stories he profiles throughout his book. Welcome to the show, Dr. Ron. Wow, that was quite an intro. I feel like we should maybe just end the show right there because I don't know if I can live up to that. <laughs> <laughs> thanks so much for that intro. Well, thanks so much for joining us, Dr. Ron, and we're really excited because we were speaking a little bit before uh, that we went uh, we went live and we were saying that your book and what you've done to really uh, apply the primal approach to this uh, ethnicity has a massive opportunity to uplift a huge amount of people in the world. So can you perhaps start off by telling us a little bit about your story and how you came to the point you're at today? Sure. You know, about a decade ago, um, I opened up shop, you know, my medical practice in you know, the heart of Silicon Valley, right next door to a large company, which everybody knows named Oracle. And I was really seeing a lot of, you know, between 20 to 40 year old um, East Asian, South Asian engineers coming into my office. And I got to tell you, you know, the background medical training that I had before practice was typically, you know, we'd go over case studies in medical school about a 60 or 7 year old African American or a Caucasian male who eats red meat and smokes cigarettes and ends up with a heart attack. So you come into medical practice with that sort of vision in your head. 
And I was really shocked to start seeing, you know, 30, 35-year-olds coming in with advanced diabetes with their first onset of a heart attack. It was absolutely nothing like anything I'd read about in my medical textbooks. So it really took me by surprise, and I felt like I was sort of relearning everything I needed to. So, you know, the, the, the one frustrating part was, you know, I was sort of handing out non-culturally tailored sort of standard USDA nutrition, you know, USDA nutrition guidelines to these patients and really not seeing much benefit, and in some cases actually seeing some worsening. So my first goal was to really develop culturally tailored solutions for diverse populations because clearly, you know, looking at a diagram of the Mediterranean food pyramid is not for engaging for a South Indian vegetarian or somebody who's eating a traditional Chinese diet. Um, so, so, you know, I started off and developed, you know, handouts and then a website. And then, you know, what I started doing is I started going out to companies to actually lecture to these folks about what should be healthy eating principles. And I think I did make somewhat of an impact, but interesting thing is I'm pretty disciplined about lifestyle and I was sort of following these guidelines myself. And lo and behold, you know, I, I maybe maintained about a body mass index of 24, 25, which by standard criteria is pretty normal. But I watched myself quickly develop metabolic syndrome with a triglyceride level above 300, despite following all the rules and the handouts and the lectures that I was pretty much imparting to um, employees. So I thought maybe I was just cursed with bad genes. But then I really started paying closer attention to the diets and nutrition and the biometric patterns of my patients. And I started seeing similar patterns over and over. And actually, it's really not even South Asian specific. I saw it in all demographics, but definitely the impact of even a small amount of excess carbohydrates was much more exaggerated in both South Asians and East Asians. And then, you know, really after I saw this develop in myself, that really gave me the additional motivation to really take a, you know, a closer look at nutrition guidelines and really do a, a deeper dive into, you know, how to approach health and wellness. So, so that kind of sparked the fuel. And then, you know, as I started looking looking at insulin resistance as I started looking into some of the so-called healthy components of the food pyramid and seeing the impact of that on my health and my patient's health, that's when I really started redesigning my corporate health education programs, um, doing more personalized wellness programs for patients and employees. And then I really um, actually came across the whole paleo primal movement thanks to a neighbor of mine that kind of told me about it. And the interesting thing is when I started looking at Paleo Primal, I realized that a lot of core components of this eating plan were traditional South Asian foods and things like ghee and coconut oil, you know, a lot of the spices that are anti-inflammatory. These are really staple foods that are part of a South Asian diet. And the tragedy is a lot of them have been ditched by traditional Asian Indians. They've kind of gotten rid of the ghee or the coconut oil for fear of, you know, you know, fat and, you know, the whole fat heart disease link. And instead, they've incorporated abundant amounts of grains and other foods that are really making their insulin resistance. Worse, so so that's where the background history behind all the, how all this evolved. Yeah, I love that, Ron, and I, I love the concept of being able to sort of just get back to a more traditional lifestyle. That just just makes so much sense, doesn't it? But you know, I guess one of the things we often hear about as paleo people is you know people will say, well, yeah, but what about the Asians? Like they're they're eating lots of rice, but they're still healthy, or you know, and and obviously you're talking not just about um, you know Asian populations, but also Asian populations living abroad and, and perhaps living in a more Eastern lifestyle as well. So. You know, how sure. much difference are you seeing between, I guess, the tradition or the Asian populations living in Asia versus the Asian populations living out of Asia? You know, so so now it's amazing within just a decade how much that picture has changed. I remember growing up, 
you know, parents and people would commonly talk about, wow, you, you never really see an overweight East Asian or a Chinese person because, you know, they're all slim and fit looking. And yeah. within a decade, we've seen skyrocketing obesity, diabetes, and heart disease in China. India it w- had remained the leader for heart disease and diabetes, but they recently got usurped by China. So, so really what I do see in general in Asians and South Asians is when they do immigrate to the U.S. Um, or other parts of the world, it looks like they do take on increased disease burden. And part of that is probably an inflation in portion sizes, processed foods, and maybe even a more sedentary lifestyle than they did have back in their native land. Um, the other part of it really, um, you know, when you compare is um, now what we're starting to see is, you know, a lot of my patients that actually immigrated and they bring in their lab results, I've started to see a trend where they are developing a lot of disease in their homeland because now um, even back in India or Bangalore or wherever they're coming from, their lives have, bec- have become increasingly sedentary with industrialization and the increased high-tech workforce. So, so that difference is becoming um, a little bit more hazy. But you're right. You brought up a really important point because a lot of my frustrated patients or radio show listeners come to me and say, you know what? Rice has been a traditional part of our diet for so long. Why are you taking that away? And the first thing, you know, what I respond to them is really uh, I'm not really advocating eliminating rice. I'm just advocating in, an intake of carbohydrates and safe starches that's compatible with your current mode of living and your activity level. And I literally tell them that, you know, when I grew up in Calcutta, I remember watching rickshaw drivers. You know, the hand-pulled rickshaw was a really common staple in Calcutta. And rickshaw drivers, you know, walk, walk and run about 40,000 steps a day. Um, so they can have three plates of rice, no problem. They're lifting <laughs> overweight families, and they're carting people around 40,000 steps a day. I know because I measure how many steps my you know, average sedentary engineers walk. They walk about two to 3,000 steps. So they're about 20 times less active than those rickshawallers or the people that are toiling in the rice fields. So sure, if they can get their activity level up to that level, I tell them, you can have the rice back, but as long as you're completely sedentary, <laughs> you're vitamin D deficient, and you're living the modern lifestyle, you just can't have your cake and eat it too. It's so funny, Ron, I was having uh, flashbacks. Every time Sarah and I go out to a, a Chinese restaurant or an Indian restaurant, <laughs> we're asked several times if we want rice, and uh, we, we say no. And uh, then through, throughout our meal, people will come up and think that, like the waitress will come up and, and think that she's done like not a good job by there not being any rice on our table. And uh, it's, it's something we always have a giggle about. So um, one of the things I'm curious about, Ron, with regards to um, the, the clients that you see or the patients that you see, what, what is some of, the, uh, like some of the knowledge that has been accepted as age-old wisdom when it comes to nutrition and life? lifestyle that you come up against uh, that's detrimental to people's health and and how do you you know what are, what are those top couple of things and how do you overcome them yeah great question you know carbohydrates are probably the staple of most ethnic cultures but especially within Indian and Asian diet and we'll focus on the Indian diet it is a huge part of it you know I mean basically when you look at a typical Indian meal you know having the rice and the flatbreads and the lentils all in one meal is a staple part of that um, and, and you brought up an interesting point with the restaurant and sort of that level of service. It is part of a culture to sort of, um, you know, show love and affection by showering people with more carbohydrates mm. in the form of things like rice and Indian sweets and all of these things. And I got to tell you, growing up, I remember going um, to my family members' houses and if you say no to rice or sweets, I literally had some relatives that would almost be in tears or actually feel completely <laughs> insulted, you know? So, so that's the kind of pressure you come up against. So that's the first thing. The second thing and it's something I really address clearly in the book, is what their perception of a healthy body composition is in kids and adults. And definitely, the, the, you know, a sense of roundness is equated with affluence, you know, happiness, and contentedness. 
And um, that's a big problem, you know, because, you know, a lot of people that look very skinny to uh, a South Asian mother-in-law or grandmother are actually probably right about at their normal body weight, whereas somebody that might be a little bit overweight, you know, so, so there's that whole distorted view of what a normal body weight should be. And in response to that, often grandparents and parents are overfeeding kids and adults to reach what they think is a healthy body composition. So I think that's a key part that really um, is a major issue. Those are probably the two components I faced the most. And then thirdly, um, this concept of an Indian vegetarian diet, and this is something I came across because whenever I'd see patients and I'd ask them about their diet, when they said they were vegetarian, they kind of thought that, okay, I got the nutrition part checked off my list. I'm good. I'm vegetarian. <laughs> um, but, but, you know, really what I teach them uh, is you know, now that I do detailed nutrition intakes on my patients, um, uh, I tell them that, you know, really you're not a vegetarian. You're a grainitarian because my average Indian patient consumes one to two servings of overcooked vegetables, usually pressure cooked. And that's in the context of a high phytic acid diet. So their real vegetable nutrient intake is probably just above nil. It's hardly anything. They don't really consume raw vegetables. So really, um, they're not truly vegetarians. I tell them that I'm not anti-vegetarian, but you know, unless they're eating six to eight servings of raw or at least lightly cooked vegetables a day, they don't qualify in my book as being called vegetarian from a health perspective. Fantastic. So. Yeah. Nice, nice. I love that. And so, you, you mentioned before about the sort of uh, you know some of them being a little bit more round. So we're going to go to the opposite <laughs> end of that and talk about a six pack. Because one of the things you talk about in your book is the metabolic six pack. So right. I'd love to hear, I'd love for you to explain what you mean by that and explain that to our listeners a little bit. You know, it's funny. The reason I came up with the metabolic six-pack is because when I started seeing tremendous progress in these patients, um, what I started noticing is often their metabolic numbers would show dramatic improvements before their body composition started to change. And, and it's funny. When, when I started working with some of the primal folks on this book, they, they all asked me, you know, you got to send us some before and after pictures. And I'll be honest with you, my before and after pictures are not as impressive as what you'd see on Mark's Daily Apple or Rob Wolf's website. Oftentimes, you know, I, I got a picture recently from a patient. He, he, he sent me before and after, and I really couldn't tell which one was the before, before picture and the after picture, but when you looked at his actual metabolic numbers, his triglycerides, his blood sugar, and all these other numbers, I realized that he had probably added 10 to 15 years to his life. And so the metabolic six-pack was my attempt at you know, keeping sort of the goals a little bit more realistic. I think we're in a sort of diet-obsessed society, you know, you know, basically reinforced by Hollywood and you know, website pickers of before and after sort of diet models. But you know, I want people to realize that you know, even if they drop their triglycerides 10 or 15 points, if you can raise their healthy cholesterol a few points, that's a huge win. And what I teach patients is even if they're looking for body composition changes, sometimes we do. Most of the time, we have to work from the inside out. You've got to attack those fat cells and the inflammation. And if we can at least get them past some of those metabolic six-pack goals of you know, maybe um, bringing down the triglyceride, raising the HDL, impacting the blood pressure, impacting the blood sugar, then that's still a win. You know? And then beyond that, we can start going for adequate body composition, not necessarily for vanity purposes, but more to really keep them more insulin sensitive as they gain more muscle and lose some of that body fat. So I think it's been a useful tool because otherwise, if you set a goal that you've got to achieve this percent body fat, you've got to look like this you know, model basically before and after a diet, then a lot of people get frustrated and give up. So I really want to make the goal as realistic as possible and not just a you know, all or nothing type approach to nutrition and lifestyle. 
Absolutely. That's so true, isn't it? And I was so, so happy to hear you talk about uh, incorporating nutrition when you talk with people, Ron, because uh, as a doctor, it's, it's so great that you're addressing this as a holistic uh, approach. And one of the things I really love about your book, and, and I've been reading it over the course of this week, is it's, it has given me, I, I hope you don't mind the comparison, but it has given me a bit of a flashback to reading Rob Wolf's book, because when I uh, was reading your book, I was thinking, wow, the, the way that you go about explaining uh, um, difficult concepts with regards to health and how the body works and how you really simplify it and you know there's a there's a, there's a little few pictures in there for someone like me but th- <laughs> these these sorts of things like you know you explain you use you use like a boat as an analogy and you use a train and the conductor as an analogy and um I was, I was wondering, what, what was your motivation for, for putting this book together? Um, who, who were you really trying to help with this in mind? Yeah, you know, concepts like insulin resistance can be very complicated, and, and I'm kind of surprised at how many doctors really don't truly understand it at, at an in-depth level. And, you know, the, the benefit I've had before writing the book, and as, as, as I've been writing it over the last decade, is I, I was doing a lot of lectures, a lot of big companies, and being sort of measured on engagement, and, you know, basic employee and patient satisfaction. So it really helped me sort of evolve the content. And a few things I noticed really increased engagement and motivation for patients and employees. And the first thing was definitely personalizing the material so it does impact a culture and that's why I really focus this book on the South Asian culture although it's applicable to almost anyone but the second thing I really um, understood is that if people really understand directly what food is doing to their body what the really physiological impact is of exercise and not being sedentary or vitamin D um, through sunlight if they understand what that does physiologically on a pretty basic level then it really motivates them to make the right changes. You know, before that, I was handing out handouts saying eat less fat, and eat more fiber, it'll help you lose weight. It's just very general comments, but you know, most of our population is very educated, and the people that are surfing the net, they know the basics of nutrition, and they really want to know what the impact of diet is on these specific numbers and metabolic markers. So I find, found that to be useful, and as I was writing the book, I realized that you know, for a lot of people, they're just visual. They need analogies that are culturally tailored. That's why I did the train station model, because every Indian's been in a train station, and everyone's been in a train station so I thought that'd be useful um, and then you know applying the images hopefully when people look at a big plate of white rice they'll think of my sort of carb car diagram and think do we want these carbs to go to fat or do we want them to go to muscle <laughs> maybe if I work out before my Indian meal a little bit and you know lift some heavy weights maybe I can redirect some of that traffic towards muscle and this is the feedback I've gotten from some patients so it, it's been gratifying to know that these images that we put a lot of time into are really having an impact. Yeah, that's awesome. And it, it is great to have something so tailored. It's just, it's fantastic. Um, one of the things you also talk about in your book is your six cholesterol rules. And I'd love you to talk a bit about that because I know, you know, people who are new to paleo or people who don't know much about paleo uh, often sort of look at it and think, well, yeah, but if you're eating all that fat, then that's going to be bad for your cholesterol, you know, all that sort of stuff. So I'd, I'd love to hear a bit more about your six cholesterol rules. Sure. And I'll sort of distill it to the critical points, but I I think one of the things that really causes a little bit of worry amongst people who shift to this sort of eating plan is oftentimes they might see their total cholesterol number go up or they might see their LDL cholesterol go up. And this really um, goes to the point that if you're looking at absolute numerical values, especially the total cholesterol and the LDL cholesterol that a lot of people, you know, a lot of patients and physicians focus on, you're really missing the boat on this because a lot of times you can have significant improvements in health and see an elevation in your total cholesterol, which is due to your healthy cholesterol going up. Um, And then the LDL cholesterol, which is the bad cholesterol, 
when you make significant changes in your diet, especially if you're already insulin resistant, you're actually shifting to a healthier particle size, and that might actually falsely elevate your LDL level. So I really go through the rules to really emphasize ratios rather than absolute numbers, and that's where the total cholesterol to HDL ratio or the triglyceride to HDL ratio in particular, a ratio which I like to keep at less than three and the lower the better, these really help unmask some of these sort of confusing numbers that people see. And believe me, because I work, I work in a medical group with over a thousand doctors, and I've had the opportunity, I've been blessed to have the opportunity to educate doctors, and now that they understand what types of changes to really expect in their patients after I've seen them, they don't get nervous when that LDL goes up. And I warn them ahead of time, I'm like, you know what, this guy is highly insulin resistant, He's got small particle LDL. That's why his LDL looks normal. But after we shift him to a healthier pattern, it might go up by 10 or 15 points. And now when they see that, you know, when the doctors and the patients see that, they're much more comfortable. So really the point, you, know, you asked an important question before, who is this written for? I started off writing this for patients. But then as I talked to more and more doctors, I realized that doctors need to be educated as well. And that's why the reading level can be very simplistic, but it can also be a bit advanced. At the end of every chapter, I put it for professional section for a lot of doctors because I know a lot of their sort of gaps in knowledge. And I'm hoping that, you know, doctors will be reading this as well. And I'm going to a lot of physician conferences. And I find that gratifying because if I can teach one doctor, that's literally 1,500 to 2,000 patients that I'm impacting. So, so really, um, you know, the cholesterol focus, I think, is one of the most important things because if doctors are not interpreting the cholesterol results properly, they are over-prescribing statins and cholesterol medications and not effectively prescribing lifestyle modifications, which is far more effective without the side effects. Ron, I found that to be so, so useful at the end of each chapter, that summary that you give, because it really ties together the important points that you've tried to make in that chapter. But I also found myself reading, you know, for physicians or for practitioners or for health experts, here are the points for you. And I found myself reading them as well. And, and I really like that because what it does is it, it for the for the person who's reading this to improve their health, it is almost like their doctor is there or, or their nutritionist is there giving them the information. So I really, really love that insight and I find it to, to be really effective. Um, I Thanks was, for that feedback. Yeah, that's great. And you know what, what I've noticed as a result of doing that, what um, some doctors have told me, it, which is nice, is now patients, you know, because I think for too long doctors have been the ones sort of imparting information and patients on the receiving end. But now I think at least both parties, hopefully with this knowledge, can have more of an intelligent conversation and come up with more of a unified plan rather than, you know, patients just believing everything their doctors are going to say. So I've had some patients already that I've seen consultation that are handing the book to their, you know, regular doctors and they've reached out to me. So, so I'm hoping that's one of the goals we can, we can end up achieving through the book. Yeah, it's a great relationship uh, worth building. I was, I was hoping you could tell us, Ron, about the website that you've uh, been heavily involved with, the Prana website, the Prevention and Awareness for South Asians uh, website. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Sure, sure. So, so back when I was at Oracle sort of doing these nutrition handouts that were culturally tailored, you know, basically um, I realized at that point that, you know, the way most of my patients were getting their information was off the web. And at that point, there was really no Asian Indian tailored, um, you know, websites out there. So I ended up developing and building Prana. And, um, and it was a lot of work. You know, we, we put a lot of content that was heart disease specific, but then we decided to evolve into children's health and women's health. So we did develop a lot of content for it. The other thing we also added were videos in English and Hindi. And the point of that is because no matter how well I teach my patients in the clinic, when they go home, often it's a mother-in-law or the grandmother who's Hindi speaking or Bengali speaking, they're doing all the cooking. And all that counseling I did in the office can go out the window <laughs> the minute they get home for dinner. 
So, so really, um, that was the other point of the book is I, I wanted to, to be a family lifestyle plan where children, adults, and seniors are kind of focused within the book. And that's why the website, we created those videos. Now, the website's been very popular. It's been a great resource. But then, you know, I, I think beyond that, I sort of had to evolve to the next level because I think the basic information on the website has been great and useful. But really um, taking it to the next level with this ancestral approach that's where I sort of evolved into my blog because um, I really wanted to have a little bit more of a direct personal conversation, you know, start sharing some personal stories and success stories. And the blog I just launched probably six to seven months ago or so, so it's it's a work in evolution. But I'm hoping to start a conversation like you guys have on your website and blog, but really that's more culturally specific so people that might have felt left out of the paleo primal or low-carb movement have a place that they can go. And that, that uh, blog is fantastic. I scoped that out as well uh, in my research uh, of you, Ron. And that one is uh, southasianhealthsolution.org. Um, really nicely laid out. It's got uh, really relevant articles as well. And, and we'll post some details um, with the episode and on our Facebook as well. Great. Thank you. And so, Ron, I'd love to, before we wrap up here, I'd love to talk a little bit about exercise because obviously that's a really important part of this whole picture as well. And I'd love to talk to you about how you've sort of integrated, I guess, some of the more traditional exercises like yoga and those sort of things with some of the more modern stuff like body weight training and even like exercise apps and devices. And, I, and I'd love to hear some <laughs> of your favorite exercise apps and devices that, that our listeners could uh, perhaps use as well. Yeah, sure. So, so you know, one of the key things I learned from this process was um, when I see patients and clients that are from a culture or a tradition where exercise is really not a big part of life, the first thing was to really focus on the diet so we can see those impactful changes on the metabolic six-pack right away. And then the next level was incorporating the exercise piece. And initially, I was sort of, you know, imparting the or prescribing the standard um, exercise guidelines and not getting much traction because one of the things you'll learn from the book is from worldwide research, we find, unfortunately, that Asian Indians are the most sedentary children and adults on planet Earth. They walk the least amount of steps. They're very professionally and academically driven. So really, exercise and activity is not a high priority on the list. So I start off and just get South Asians to walk because walking has been a big part of their culture. Um, still in parts of India, people are walking to get to public transportation. So that's the first step. Most um, South Asians have had some exposure to some form of yoga. And then that's where I decided that somehow I would bring yoga and link it to bodyweight exercises. The first step I need to do is first engage them and help them understand why resistance training is actually useful. And that's why we come back to that three-way diagram where I show that if you have more strength and muscle, the muscle is going to take up the burden of that carbohydrate load. And when they get that, they realize that they do need to incorporate strength. Many of them, because of you know, cultural conservativeness, are not going to go to a public gym. So I realized that I've got to use the devices that they're addicted to, like their phones and their smartphones and computers, and give them something they can do in the privacy of their own home. So, you know, almost everyone that's done yoga or they've done the sun salutation, which is a popular yoga series, which most Indians are familiar with. If you look at the individual moves in that yoga series, it involves things like lunges and squatting and doing backbends. And a lot of the things that if you look at, they can, they really evolved into being a lot of the sort of the CrossFit type exercises people end up doing now. So, so, so what I tell them is number one, let's focus on lower body because I tell them if you really want to impact insulin resistance and add muscle, Instead of going to the gym and just lifting dumbbells or doing light weight machines, let's get those legs stronger because we see a lot of, in addition to insulin resistance, I'm seeing a lot of premature arthritis, a lot of osteoporosis in Asian Indian men and women because they're sitting so much and they're vitamin D deficient. 
So this is where the apps are huge because, believe me, even people that like to exercise, you know, a squat is something that not everybody's very happy about doing. But using apps, I found, was a really great tool. So there's one company in particular that I prescribed throughout the, the book, and they're called Runtastic. And so Runtastic makes um, apps for squats, um, push-ups and pull-ups and other bodyweight exercises, and it uses a smartphone's accelerometer. So most of my patients probably can do more than 15 to 20 squats. So basically, the app will do a diagnostic test, and then every other day, it will have it do sort of a logistic progression towards a squat goal. And it's been a game changer. I just came back from Oracle today. One of my most popular toxic companies, I've titled it, An App a Day Keeps a Doctor Away. So I literally go through resistance training apps, you know, Tabata apps, nutrition apps, stress apps, and sleep apps. And the Runtastic app has been great because it gets them to start squatting. And then once they get that strength and they see the impact on their biometric numbers, now they've got the confidence to maybe add on some dumbbells, a kettlebell, maybe hit a gym and start doing the next step. But the key is to really get them going through baby steps and doing this. And many of them find that after they do squats, now when they do their culturally sensitive yoga, their yoga is so much better now. They can, you know, step into deeper lunges. They can do their, you know, series of poses much stronger than before. So it's really those baby steps and incorporating exercises that they're familiar with that's been a real game changer for these people. That's uh, that's fantastic, Ron, and, and I'm sad that we're uh, out of time, mate. We uh, we got to wrap it up today. But um, the sure. book the book is called The South Asian Health Solution. It's uh, published out of the Primal Blueprint Publishing, uh, Mark Sisson's label, and it's available on Amazon. Uh, you can check it out on Google. But it's a great read. It's a great read for anybody of any type of ethnicity background. Um, I was having flashbacks to my Italian uh, roots and background, and you know the threat. <laughs> Of a, of a backhander that I would get uh, if I turned my nose up at any food as well, Ron. So I can certainly appreciate <laughs> that side of things. But, but also the knowledge that you share, though, Ron, is applicable to the human physiology. It's applicable to everybody. So it's, it's a great bo- uh, book. I really thank you for, uh, for putting it together and congratulate you, mate, because the, uh, the ethnicity group that you address with this primal approach, I think, is, is one of the biggest opportunities um, for uplifting uh, health in that area Um, so it's a fantastic book go check it out also uh, Ron's blog where you can find information like the apps he recommends and so forth uh, is the is southasianhealthsolution.org as always um, we hope that you enjoyed the show as much as we did today make sure you tell us what you think and until next week check us out on Facebook and Instagram share your story and help to grow the paleo tribe worldwide Hi, Damien Christoph from The Wellness Guys here. It is on! The Wellness Summit returns to Melbourne in August. You asked for more and we listened. This year's Wellness Summit is not one, but two days of powerhouse wellness filled with your favourite wellness couch hosts, including The Wellness Guys and the Up For A Chat Girls and a very special guest. What's even more special is our crazy early bird two-for-one special offer. But... These seats are strictly limited to 150 seats and you must sign up to be a member of the couch by no later than midnight on Sunday, April 27, Eastern Australian Standard Time. Membership is free by signing up at www.thewellnesscouch.com. Don't miss out on half-price tickets to the summit. Register your name and email at www.thewellnesscouch.com and we'll see you in Melbourne to climb the Wellness Summit. 
This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.